201. I have a B minus blood type. Come get some. Oh, that's funny. Let's just start with that. Um, just I like have a B minus blood type. Come get some. <laughs> Clip it. Buzzwords podcast. I'm here today with Bo, and we're talking about the GI system again. Again, what are you drinking? I am drinking a little something hazy. It's a Lagunitas ale, um, in honor of the California wildfires. You know, sure it's pretty hazy back over there. Jesus, is that too much? (laughs) Oh, a little something hazy. Very nice. An 89 on Beer Advocate, New England IPA. Is it in a bottle? Is that what you got in? Yeah, I'm going to have to uh, clink the bottle today in lieu of nice. my usual can opening sound. We're going in all natural for the summer with the classic weedyishness brew you know and love. With a special dry hopping of cashmere, citra, and mosaic on a bed of centennial and chin hook. Juicy caddy and leaves you with a hop scratch that you can't help but tickle with another taste. Does that clear things up? Wait, is it ca- you said cashmere. Isn't that a fabric? Yeah, Am dude, none, almost fabric? none of that made sense to me. <laughs> Literally, cashmere doesn't make sense. Mosaic doesn't make sense. Chin hook doesn't make sense. They describe it as caddy. Yeah, maybe it's like cashmere cat, like from uh, Alice in Wonderland. Oh, nice reference. Uh, Unfiltered, raw, all natural. Yeah. All right, well, like it sounds raw. good. <laughs> <laughs> I do like it unfiltered. <laughs> Is that better? Can you use that one? <laughs> All right, cool. So you're drinking the uh, little something hazy. I'm excited for you. It looks like a cool, cool looking bottle. Yeah. What are you sipping on today? So today I've got the Kevita Master Brew Kombucha. And so before you ask me, is it a hard kombucha? It's not. I have to go to work in about three hours, and therefore today is a uh, alcohol-free drink. But it's a great kombucha. I will say I have a uh, about ten dollars a week that my program gives me for uh, meals, and I use those ten dollars a week on uh, kombucha, and I bring them home. So today it's the uh, Master Brew Kombucha Lavender Melon flavor. 60 calories per serving, 16 grams of sugar. You need to work on your program giving you a bigger stipend because my, my friend who is a fellow now did his residency at USC and they gave him $50 a day. Yeah, all the LA programs have uh, unionized. They're really good. UCLA is the same thing. None of them ever bought any groceries because they would all just um, eat all their meals at UCLA because they got something crazy like $30 a day. Yeah. Plus like 10000 housing stipend. Um, yeah, I feel like that probably doesn't even go that far in LA though. No, it doesn't. Well, it'll yeah, it'll make um, it'll make like your three thousand dollar a month rent into two thousand dollars a month, which is like, at least not insane, insane, just a little insane. Yeah. I don't know what the uh, kombucha rating is for this drink, but I've had it in the past and it's really good. I recommend it, especially the uh, lavender melon flavor. So let's do this. A mosaic of lavender and melon. <sighs> For the viewers at home, you know, please send in your comments and feedback regarding our um, really mouth sounds and slurping. I know you guys love it, and I, you know, it just makes me feel great to read all those comments you've been sending in. So keep it up. Anyway, an old man comes in with aortic stenosis, and he comes in because he's having a brisk upper GI bleed. What is it? Um, angiodysplasia of the bowel. 
Yeah. Nice. Ding, ding, ding. Are you going to educate us on anything about that? It has something to do with the, um, excuse me, the Adams TS-13 uh, Multimer. Normally it gets cleaved and uh, that has something to do with the coagulation cascade that I'm forgetting. But anyway, when you have this aortic stenosis, for whatever reason, it disrupts that process. And so you end up having a predisposition to get AVA. Right. All right. Along the same topic of GI bleeds, what is the most common cause of acute lower GI bleeds? Uh, I would imagine that is a bleeding diverticula. Perfect. Diverticulosis. So if anyone gets a question prompt and they're not too sure, I would be willing to bet that uh, diverticulosis should be should at least be up there on your differential if you don't really know why the person is bleeding and they don't give you any other information. And it's painless. Maybe a person has a history of uh, constipation. Maybe they're on a bowel regimen. Maybe any type of hint that they're constipated, um, that they've had bouts of this in the past, if they're elderly, think about diverticulosis. Along those same lines, uh, let's say someone is bleeding. You know that. You know it's a GI bleed, and you don't know where it's from. Is it upper GI bleed, lower GI bleed? For whatever reason, they can't get scoped. Your attending is pimping you. They're like, where is this bleed coming from? Tell me based off the labs. Is there any lab value? Uh, just basic labs that normally people get every day that would help you determine whether it's an upper or lower GI bleed? Um, I would think a bilirubin would be helpful. Bilirubin? Why is that? Uh, because like we, like you just said, you know, your upper GI bleeds, there's time for the stomach and the GI floor to kind of process the blood. Um, and as we all know, uh, heme, a breakdown leads to bilirubin. So hmm. if it was a upper GI bleed, you'd have an elevated bilirubin, whereas a lower GI bleed, I think you'd just have a normal bilirubin. And you're saying, so the bilirubin would then go and get reabsorbed back into the blood mm -hmm. from the GI tract? That's interesting. I actually don't know if that is, uh. Actually, don't know. Um, I was leaning towards uh, a BUN, and the reason I was leaning towards a BUN is actually I got pimped about this as a third-year medical student, well, where they said that exact thing. They said, "Where's the bleed coming from?" If you had to guess, it was based off of this, you know, uh, basically metabolic panel. And right. um, BUN was the answer because it was a upper GI bleed, and with the upper GI bleeds, you actually have an elevated urea uh, BUN um, as the bacteria and the flora start digesting. Uh, the blood that's actually a breakdown product and it's kind of similar to what you said with the bilirubin it'll start just building up in the blood um and therefore you can kind of start thinking hey i'm on a question prompt i'm like halfway you know through this set of 40 questions i'm tired i don't know where this bleed is coming from they're asking me and then you look at the labs that uh, you know the nvme or you somebody give you and you see an elevated bun maybe that's the hint that it's an upper gi bleed versus a lower one yeah that's a good point and is that just from i would assume it's like the protein breakdown exactly exactly yeah so I, I think they both do go up because then if you think about hemoglobin, you have like, you know, the heme component with the iron and stuff that gets broken down into bilirubin. And then you have the globin component, which is the protein that gets broken down into the uh, urea. I'm looking it up. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Based off this uh, PowerPoint that I am uh, somehow caught. Nice. Um, and, you know, we've been talking about upper and lower IGA bleeds, so you can, one of the ways you distinguish it is, you know, the color of the blood and the changes in lab values. What is the uh, anatomical landmark that differentiates it? That's the uh, ligamentum of treats. Treats? Yep. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce that either. Ligamentum Tria. of treats or something. Treats. It's a treat. All right. Well, I'll drink to that. Cheers. We need uh, tougher questions. We need uh, viewers at home. To send in some, some real tough ones. Stump us. You will.
I'm just kidding, you might. Um, you can't okay. drink kombucha too quickly. It hurts. Yeah, I I have a hard time drinking carbonated beverages in general. Like soda, I don't know, gets to me. It's good for my health, I guess, and then I don't drink it as much because of that, but it's annoying sometimes. So somebody comes in, and they had a ruin Y gastric bypass, like maybe six months ago, and they're coming with like some nausea, some lightheadedness, diarrhea, um, and like autonomic symptoms, like they're they're sweating, they feel you know like they'll have palpitations, and th this all happens within like twenty minutes of eating. What's going on? I think they're dumping. Yep, exactly. So that's dumping syndrome, where because they have less small intestine to absorb stuff, they actually are dumping a uh, high osmotic load into their remaining small intestine and that causes a uh, osmotic diarrhea and then also gives uh, some autonomic symptoms as well yeah what's the basis on that isn't it something to do with like a spike in insulin um i don't know about that i think it just has to do with like you lose you know 10 um or however many like 100 centimeters or whatever of bowel and so usually i believe it's the you lose most of your duodenum when you get a ruin Y. So I think the jejunum and ileum kind of freak out when they get that, you know, chyme or whatever directly from the stomach. And that's what causes the symptoms. Yeah, exactly. And I think what you said, just to wrap it up, it says, uh, this one review article says, dumping syndrome causes a shift of fluid, which is what you said, from the intravascular components to the intestinal lumen, causing cardiovascular symptoms and autonomic symptoms, as well as release of GI and pancreatic hormones, causing late postprandial hypoglycemia, which is, I think, why you oh, get that that's you get the autonomic. autonomic that yeah. Interesting. Is there a way to treat that if someone came in with dumping syndrome or prompts that the person has dumping syndrome? Yeah, um, though, I don't think there's any medications and stuff that they give. Um, maybe a uh, something to slow gut motility a little bit, but I think yeah. the mainstay of treatment is actually, like, instead of, because it has to do with this big osmotic load, so you want to eat lower-carb meals and you want to have, like, small... Like you snack throughout the day instead of eating like three big meals a day. Yep. Initial therapy should focus on dietary measures. Even a carbose can be added in patients with hypoglycemia. Um, and patients that do not respond, they can actually try somatostatin analogs, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. Cool. That's a great, great high yield point. Just running back to uh, GI bleeds real quick. Any other concerns or any other causes? Let me say that again. And just making a full circle back to GI bleeds before we move on. Any other causes of lower GI bleeds? Like if you just, if you had a prompt, lower GI bleed was kind of in the differential, what are some of the things that you're thinking about? We talked about diverticulosis and angiodysplasia. Yeah. Um, those are the big two that come to mind. I think they're actually the one and two most common. Uh, other things, I mean, you can have like a, um, what is it? The thing that kids have, we talked about it last week. It was the... Yeah, like the meckles or intestinal. Yeah, meckles will do it, or intestinal. But even more more common than that, you're thinking too hard. Just uh, for the person that's like needs to create this like list of differentials yeah. for lower GI bleed, like uh, inflammatory bowel disease, for example, can cause lower oh, GI right. bleed. Oh right, yeah. So like, ulcerative colitis is a big one. Mm -hmm. Hemorrhoids, for example, if someone comes in for lower GI bleed, like think about hemorrhoids. Um, they, the hint for that would be, you know, they wipe. The blood isn't really mixed with the stool. It's really only when they wipe they see the blood. Um, and if there's blood in the toilet, it's typically kind of little specks of blood that are separate from the stool. They haven't had time to really mix. Um, so that's hemorrhoids, often painless, but can be painful. Right. Well, I think what's the classic saying? Like external hemorrhoids itch or hurt and then internal hemorrhoids bleed. Yep, exactly. Yep. Internal hemorrhoids are the ones I think that 
like pregnant women get, it's pressure related. Um, often don't hurt too much, but can cause some annoying bleeding. And then fissures are another big one. And fissures can be associated with a bunch of things, but they can also just kind of be trauma, um, constipation, things like that can cause fissures in the long run. And those can cause a lot of painful um, lower GI bleeds as well. Well, I'll drink to that. And one more big one before we drink, like the biggest one, the reason like if anyone comes in and they're over the age of 50 and they're bleeding, oh, you don't yeah, know where. Cancer. You got to think about cancer, right? And the classic thing they teach us in uh, step review is that a left-sided colon cancer is different than a right-sided colon cancer, oftentimes in the symptoms and manifestations. The left one, I think, is obstructive symptoms, and the right one is more of a kind of ulcerative bleeding-like symptom. Or maybe I have those reversed. No, yeah, that's right. So the left side, if you think about like where, you can think about it in terms of like proximity to your rectum. So the left side is closer to your rectum, and those tend to be like napkin ring lesions, um, which, like you said, cause constriction. So that'll cause changes in like stool patterns and like constipation or even diarrhea if you have like overflow. Um, Whereas the right sided ones are a little bit further away and they tend to be more of like a, like you said, an ulcerative or like a pedunculated type mass that bleeds and leads to like anemia and stuff. Yep. Makes sense. And now that we're talking about colorectal cancer, um, let me just ask you, these are some tough ones about uh, screening, but I think screening is a huge part of the SEP2 exam. At least for me, the one thing that I wish I studied a little bit more prior to taking my SEP2 exam were just like screening protocols, colon cancer screening being one of them. Yeah, screening and prevention has already like it showed up on my step too as well but it's also i think the aamc recently like they announced testing changes every year and one of the things that they were saying is that they want to add more of that type of stuff more preventative medicine more screening type questions so this is definitely stuff to to know yeah so if someone comes in and they have no past medical history or family history of colon cancer what age do we initially give them a colonoscopy so you start at 50 and then if they Perfect. don't have any issues then it's it's uh, every 10 years after that until I believe uh, 75 is when you do it, when you stop. Yeah, I don't know the end date actually, but 50 is the start date. And right. yeah, you can do a colonoscopy every 10 years. You could do a sigmoidoscopy every five years if, for whatever reasons. It's, you're basically there. You basically have to bowel prep anyway, so I'm not entirely sure why you would yeah. uh, want to do the sigmoidoscopy. But um, that's And then there's obviously uh, these newer modalities where um, you can do it every year, but I don't know if the step exam is that up to date. Yeah, I feel like they would still ask you about colonoscopy uh, they wouldn't start asking about these kind of newer, newer yeah, age things like I taking think, the pill or right or like the fecal occult blood test, um, yep. FOBT for short. I think that's the type of thing that you'll you'll get asked about on the wards if you're doing like a GI rotation or something. But I don't think that's really um, that important for for step two because like you said, it's kind of a newer thing. So, so if you have a first degree relative that ends up having colon cancer, when should you get your first colonoscopy? So, um, in that instance, you would actually start at forty or ten years before that first free relative developed their cancer, whichever is, is sooner. Perfect, perfect. So if someone had colon cancer at the age of 49, you would actually get your colonoscopy at the age of 39 because yep. it's before 40. And then finally, if someone has ulcerative colitis, they're diagnosed, when do they start getting colonoscopies? So This one's the toughest. Nah, I got it. It's actually, you start eight years after the uh, their diagnosis. Perfect. And do, do you know how frequently they need colonoscopies once I they start? I believe it's Q3. Uh, yeah, I think, so there's not a great answer. It's kind of a bad question because I think there's there's people that differ. Upper debate. But I think on average, it's one to two years. So if it's like um, maybe less concerning one year, they can hold off for two mm -hmm. years. But I think it, it's pretty regular. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know how much detail the test will want you to know in terms of like, say somebody is, is higher risk like how frequently you'd be screened and stuff. So like 
like we were saying earlier, like if somebody doesn't have any risk factors, it's every 10 years. But if they um, are high risk for whatever reason, they might do it every five years. Or if they find something on the colonoscopy, you might actually have to repeat it in a year or two. Right. Um, and then there's certain other conditions that are kind of low yield, but like uh, like juvenile polyposis syndrome and um, like familial adenomatous polyposis, uh, you actually start doing colonoscopies earlier. And then like, you'll, like you said, you do them yearly or like, Yep. And so just to piggyback off that real quick, because I did get a question on my real step two exam about someone's colonoscopy, they found a polyp and, and how many years were they supposed to follow up and I got it wrong. So if someone gets a colonoscopy and they're low risk, you don't have to do anything. You can do the normal, you know, surveillance. If someone has an inter intermediate risk kind of profile with three or four small adenomas, maybe one is at least one centimeter in size, um, they come back in three years. And if someone's high risk, like greater than eight small adenomas or greater than three that are more than one centimeter, then they come back in one year. And there's some there's some protocol for five years. Uh, let me see if I can find that. I know there is, but uh... yeah. Well, while you're looking that up, um, another thing to know is like the different um, characteristics. So like how the polyps actually look is worth knowing. So you have uh, tubular polyps and you have villus polyps, which is like a histology finding, but you won't have to be able to recognize them on histology. It'll just be described to you. Um, and tubular polyps are more benign, whereas villus polyps are more concerning. Um, an easy way to remember that is, you know, villus sounds like villain, so those are the worst ones. Um, and then in terms of their actual shape, you have pedunculated polyps, which you can kind of think of like a uh, slug's eye or something where it's this little ball at the end of a stalk, um, which is relatively benign as a pair compared to a like sessile polyp or a sawtooth polyp, which is more kind of flat and um, not really raised off the bowel surface. Um, and those are higher risk. So colonoscopy screening, no past medical or family history, you start at 50, no problem. First degree relative, you start at 40 or 10 years prior to the affected family member, whichever comes first. Ulcerative colitis, start eight years after the diagnosis of UC. Villus is worse than tubular, more villainous, and you can be low, intermediate, or high risk profiles depending on how many adenomas they find or the quality of the adenoma. So if someone had a villus adenoma, that puts them more in the intermediate risk rather than low risk, and therefore they should follow up in three years. Anything else? I think that's it. I think that's particularly high yield. I've heard that board examiners love to go after this one. I'll drink to that. And so I will drink to that. What did you think about our little uh, poem, uh, poem break last time? I uh, forgot we did that. And I hear you <laughs> looking up a poem right now. And so I shall do the same. Baby shoes yeah. for sale, never worn. Paul, you can't do that every time. Oh, is that the one that I used last time? Uh, Haikus <laughs> are easy, but sometimes used, they don't make sense. You said that too. You said well, that did too. Did you use both of them? God, you yeah. all my poems away. <laughs> I'm looking at these poems, and they're all pretty lame, or they're very long. All right, well, we can end it with this. Roses are red, violets are blue. He's for me, not for you. If by chance you take my place, I'll take my fist and smash your face. Is that a Muhammad oh, Ali poem or something? It's very violent. <laughs> it might be, actually. Okay. So, we've talked about lower GI bleeds. Let's take a couple minutes to talk about upper GI bleeds. Kind of the same kind of buzzword layout. Can you just tell me anything that comes to mind when someone has an upper GI bleed? NSAID abuse. Bleeding ulcer. Um, alcoholics are associated with... Um, Lorhavens, as well as a Valerie Weiss tear, although those tend to be more vomiting and less GI bleedy. Um, most common bleeds in cirrhotics is actually a 
um, their seal bleed. So you got all the ones that I was thinking about, peptic ulcer disease, uh, gastritis slash esophagitis, Mallory Weiss tear, Borhobs, and esophageal varices. You're a pregnant woman and you have a hernia. What is it? <laughs> pregnant woman and you have a hernia. Um, what is it? A femoral hernia. Yeah. Is that a big deal or not? Nah? That is the most dangerous of all hernias. Least common, but most dangerous. Unlike the indirect hernia, which is the most common for both sexes, actually, and not super dangerous through the external inguinal ring lateral to the epigastric vessels and often due to a congenital patent processus vaginalis. Oh, yeah? You're going to throw some Latin in here? Well, what's the name of the uh, triangle that direct hernias go through? So the triangle that the direct hernia goes through goes through kind of a defect in the transversalis fascia, and it's medial to the epigastric vessels, so that's part of the triangle. You have your linear alba, or your basically your abdominal muscles, which is the vertical portion of the triangle, right? Yeah. And yeah. you have your inguinal, oh yes, you have your inguinal canal. That, I think, is the upper kind of portion of the triangle. Is that correct or no? Uh, I don't think so. I think the linea, so you have on the medial aspect of the triangle is the lateral portion of the rectus abdominis. Like you said, your lateral part of the triangle is the uh, inferior epigastric vessels. And then I believe the floor of the triangle is the linea alba. No, not linea alba, inguinal ligament. Right, sorry, inguinal ligament. So you described it. But it's called Hasselbach's triangle. Hasselbach's, perfect. So just to, just to confirm, rectus abdominis medially, inferior epigastric vessels superiorly, inguinal ligament inferiorly. The key portion, the triangle really doesn't matter other than the fact that direct hernias go straight through and indirect hernias are lateral. Yep, yeah, they're lateral to the uh, inferior epigastric. Perfect. All right, so we talked about diverticulosis already as the primary cause of lower GI bleeds. But what is diverticulitis? So diverticulitis is actually a continuation basically of diverticulosis where you have these outpouchings and then that's diverticulosis. And then actual diverticulitis is when um, there's, it's basically theorized to be like a micro perforation um, that allows like bacterial translocation. And then you end up getting sick as a result of it. Perfect, yep. So inflammation of the diverticulum Oftentimes, you can start treating it just with bowel rest, actually, and some broad-spectrum antibiotics. So something to cover the GI flora, metronidazole fluoroquinolones, or acephalosporin. And if that works, it's great. And I think there's not controversy, but there is right now some literature suggesting that you should start with antibiotics. Some people say still, you know, you should um, scan and look for abscesses, blah, blah, blah. But um, I think I think it'd be safe to at least if someone comes in with diverticulosis or diverticulitis, think about um, starting antibiotics for them if that is an option. What yeah. do you think about that? That sounds yeah. good to me. I think uh, something that has come up in my uh, reading in the past actually is if it's an uncomplicated uh, diverticulitis, you can actually start with oral antibiotics and then say they develop an abscess or something, then it's considered a comp complicated uh, diverticulitis. And that's when you actually switch to IV antibiotics. Right. And then obviously if there's any signs of perforation or the person's toxic, you want to start um, getting surgery involved. Yep. Perfect. All right, I have another, uh, I have a vignette today. We haven't had too many vignettes. How's your drink, by the way? It's pretty good. Um, I mean, it's it's just like a, you know, an IPA. I like Lagunitas. I feel like they, I think they're based out of San Diego, actually, but they, they have a lot of good beers. Yeah, we'll need to uh, make a, kind of some higher stakes for future episodes. You know, people want some craziness. They come to this, they come to this podcast, not just for the education, but also to see our uh, wild stunts. So maybe in the yeah. future we need to uh, think about 
uh, how we implement uh, such stunts into our podcast. Yeah, I think uh, down the line there's there's the room for a potential escalation in terms of like getting questions incorrect, leading to maybe shots or something of that nature. Yeah, or push-ups. Yeah. So you have a gentleman come in, history of atrial fibrillation, hypertension, with severe abdominal pain. You push on his belly, and he actually doesn't have that much pain. What are you thinking about? I am thinking about poop, which is appropriate for a GI podcast, but he is having acute mesenteric ischemia. Perfect. And why? What, what, what risk factors does he have? So in the vignette, you describe the atrial fibrillation, which puts him at an increased risk for throwing a clot somewhere. In this case, his SMA, most likely. Um, and then on physical exam, the classic finding is poop, which stands for pain out of proportion. So he'll be kind of writhing on the bed, and then you'll push on him, and it won't really make it worse. Right. Exactly. So mesenteric ischemia, uh, physical exam is really not as bad as the patient's stated pain. The patient is writhing in pain. It's horrible. Maybe they have episodes like this in the past where they'll eat something, and their bowels start moving, and it just doesn't have enough blood flow, um, and it's called, quote, intestinal angina. Um, it can be due to embolism or arterial occlusion, which is what you said. Oftentimes, it can even be associated with some bloody bowel, so always ask about bloody bowel or look for it in the vignette. There are actually some interesting lab markers, so if you get a step two, you know, vignette, and it gives you an elevated LDH or CK, those are just kind of classic inflammatory signs, signs of um, bowel dying, for example, um, and so those will kind of point you towards a more kind of uh, ischemic picture as well. And then on CT, there's the classic thumbprinting, which is due to the bowel wall edema, so always something to think about. Right, yeah, that, that thumbprinting, I, I think on, this might have been a year old question, or it might have been on um, step two, but I, I've definitely seen a question that revolved around you kind of recognizing that thumbprinting on imaging to kind of yeah. help support your diagnosis and get to the actual answer. And I think we might have talked about this in the past, I think maybe on our first podcast, but how would you actually diagnose, what's the gold standard diagnosis on a step two question so, uh, regarding this? Yeah, so the gold standard is actually a uh, CT angiography. Perfect. Yep. And I know uh, treatment is a little is a little dicey. I don't think they would ask you how you would treat it per se, but um, if there is an embolism, you can start anticoagulation. Um, if you're concerned about you know perforation or you know GI flora spilling into the blood, um, you want to start on antibiotics. Give them some fluid because maybe they're fluid down and now they um, just don't have enough blood or, or fluid going to the bowel. And obviously, if the bowel was infarcted, um, you would need to go in and, and resect the bowel that's damaged. Anything else? I think, uh, what is it, Papervine has a role as well. Um, it's a vasodilator, actually, that can help kind of restore blood flow to the area. I don't think it's a definitive treatment, but I think it might be a bridge to more uh, definitive therapy. Yep. No, I remember that. I remember looking into that last time because I think you spoke about it before. It treats like a visceral spasm, I think. Yeah. Like that vasospasm of the visceral blood vessels. Cool. I'll drink to that. Cheers. So, Bobby, what would you ultimately rate this brew that you drank today? I would give it a 7. It's pretty solid. I'd drink it again. If it was at a bar and I saw it, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'll have that. <laughs> Last episode, you gave that brew, I think, something around a 6 or 6.5. So this is definitely better than that. Yeah, I would say so. It's very uh, cashmere, maybe even a bit mosaic. Oh, indubitably. So on the uh, kombucha scale, I would give lavender melon probably a 6, 6 out of 10. I would definitely drink it again, and I have multiple in my fridge. Um, this is the so best you will drink ever. it again. <laughs> definitely. And especially because I'm, I'm just buying it 
from the hospital cafeteria with hospital money it just makes it that much sweeter but right all right guys that is it for today's episode as always reach out to us if you have any questions or concerns we're ready for some tough questions so uh shoot us any toughies that you have uh, we'll be happy to answer them we'll give you a little shout out and uh we're thinking about creating a line of uh, cool looking stickers we're designing them right now so if you send us an email send us some good questions uh we'd be more than happy to ship you a, a handful of stickers for you and your friends so and with that have a wonderful day and a nice week and we will talk to y'all soon bye bye now see ya